Hi, Vanessa. How's your wine? Delicious, actually. Wow. How delightful for you. One day when we get sponsors, which will be never, mm. uh, I, I hope to present the, the wine service that I use. But mm, That'd be fun. I thought you were going to say uh, Lafrog. How do you pronounce it? Lafroig. Lafroig would be the oh perfect sponsor. Oh, my God. I would, I would so sell out oh to, be, to represent You Lafroig. would do a lot for them. I would do, I would do a lot for them, yes. <laughs> The menu of services that I would provide. <laughs> I'm just like every 10 seconds in the podcast, we're just like, Lafroig. <laughs> just like cut in and out. Mm, sorry, I, I did not hear it. Could you repeat that? I was focused on the smoky flavor. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine if we had to like figure out how to insert it into a question in every uncertain things interview? Oh my God. I, we're going to manifest it. It's going to happen. <laughs> I'm sure our listeners can't wait. Yeah. Um. So today we have... Mark Leela, an interview that would be enjoyed with a nice glass of scotch, actually, this yeah, interview. Yes. Mark Leela, to anyone who doesn't know, is a social political scientist and a historian of ideas and philosophy. He teaches at Columbia University and wrote a number of books. Uh, he wrote the two brilliant books surveying or, or collections of essays surveying the unholy marriage of intellectualism and political activism during the 20th century. The reckless mind about the early 20th century and the shipwrecked mind about the reactionaries of the late 20th century. Highly, deeply, profoundly recommended. And it was really great because he ended up telling us that he's almost done with a brand new book coming out soon called Ignorance and Bliss. And we had a whole fascinating conversation around ideas of ignorance and innocence that we weren't really planning for right. before we got there, but it was so interesting. Right. So I've been wanting to have um, some sort of conversation with him along the lines of the previous books for ages. And then he wrote a few articles for the uh, Liberties magazine, which, which I also recommend subscribing to. There's some great writing there, which expanded our conversation. And then he also dropped in us this new upcoming book of his mm-hmm. where he tackles the uh, cultural addiction to innocence and, and childhood, intellectual childhood, which he, what's the word? Not eschews, uh, castigates, criticizes, challenges, blasts. <laughs> right. And it's, it's anathema to his own personal ideology, but he, he kind of diagnoses it from an American cultural perspective. Like, what is it about ignorance slash innocence, which she kind of writes about intertwined, that is so attractive to Americans. So we talk about the allure of ignorance. Mm. We talk about power and, and temptation of nostalgia in reactionary thought. We talk about the way that intellectualism and profound theory can be recruited and abused by political movements and the psychology of these political movements. It's quite a long conversation, right? Yeah, it was great. I recommend staying all the way through. Yeah. yeah plug it during your drive from I don't know, Akron to, <laughs> to New Jersey. Right. Um, and I do recommend actually listening all the way to the end because there is a moment probably halfway through the episode where we ask him to talk about um, his essay on indifference, on the art of indifference, mm. and fantastic. And he gives a little, like, a brilliant couple-minute teaser answer. And then at the very end, we circle back, and he kind of elaborates on it. So it's well worth listening all the way through, I would say, just for that. And that the the charge that he kind of leaves the listener with mm. to feel 
empowered to live in your own garden of maybe not earthly, but intellectual delights. Speaking of earthly delights, this is Uncertain Thing, <laughs> the podcast, and we are on uncertain.substack.com mm-hmm. and on all the podcatchers. If you want to show support to the cause of promoting indifference in the world, mm. Please give us a five-star <laughs> review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps. And I've seen that a bunch of you have been doing it in the past Ooh. couple of days. And this is awesome. And thank you. Keep it up. It helps us reach new people, which is lovely. So thank you. Well, with that. <laughs> right? I guess. Mark Lila. Mark Lila. Mark, thank you for indulging us. How about we start with... Uh, an elevator bio of your academic work? Um, well, actually, I started in journalism before I became an academic. I was an editor of a magazine called The Public Interest and started writing for magazines at the time and newspapers. After a while, decided that um, the three best reasons to be an academic were June, July, and August. So I went back to graduate school and uh, I have always done journalism and essay writing on the side. Um, and so I got a degree um, in the history of political thought, wrote a book about an obscure thinker named Vico. I faced the choice of either going to Germany to write about Hegel because I was interested in philosophy of history, which meant um, uh, going to a cold place with a very difficult language uh, and uh, lousy food, uh, or writing about Vico, whom no one, very few people had written about or going knew to about. Italy. Go to Italy, eat good food, meet a nice girl. And uh, I, I made the right choice yeah. uh, with Vico as well. Vico is the philologist, right? Is the, uh, the, the new science. Yeah, the new science. He was, he was uh, sort of in, an inventor of what he thought was a new science of the human race and of history. But you're right, his background was in philology. He thought he had found a way to marry uh, philology and philosophy. Did that, uh, got that out of the way. And since then, uh, well, maybe I can say a word about why I wrote about that and the kind of problems that came, or the questions that came out of that that have been with me ever since. And I guess you could say fundamentally that my concern has always been regarding the goodness of knowledge. Contemporary philosophers have a lot to say about uh, the possibility of uh, our attaining knowledge and what the conditions are and all the rest, all those epistemological questions. But the question of the goodness of knowledge, which was a fundamental question from the beginning of the tradition with Socrates, has dropped away. And when you say goodness, you mean moral goodness, like the moral value of the, the, knowledge? The, the, the value for life. Mm-hmm. The value for life. You know, Nietzsche was the last thinker who, rose, who raised the question only to say that instead we needed a will to ignorance rather than a will to knowledge in order to recover our will to power and all the rest. So, so that question was kind of paramount uh, for me for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that... Um, uh, at the age of 13, uh, I became a Jesus freak, and that was in 1970. The coolest kids in school were all reading the Bible. This was a working-class high school at the edge of the border of Detroit, and I had a conversion and spent seven years in a religious community, uh, pretty much just living on the Bible. 
and not studying or knowing anything else. And then when I was in college, near the end of college, I lost my faith and have been on my own, so to speak, without God uh, ever since. So the question of, on the one hand, I had what I thought was secure knowledge about everything, which I lost, and then faced the question, well, how to move on after that intellectually uh, and spiritually, so to speak. The other thing is I came from a blue-collar family where no one had gone to college. Pretty soon I ended up at Harvard, and I'm living in New York, and in, in worlds quite remote from the one I grew up in. The gap between my knowledge and theirs kept expanding. Mm. Whether my life was any better than theirs, my family's life, and the people I grew up with uh, was a question mark. Uh, so I've been chewing on that bone ever since. Huh. I, I, I didn't think to ask you about this, but the, the, losing God in college, is that a question of realizing that or feeling that you were intellectually malnourished before and that that framework just doesn't cut it for you anymore? Or was it something yes. else? Oh, I just lost faith in the truth of the revelation. Mm -hmm. You know, it happened within a week. And, you know, uh, people who have conversions like to tell conversion stories. And then if they have a deconversion, they tell another story. And it's never so neat and clean. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's not as if I was knocked off my house first. And then, you know, six, seven years later, I jump back on another horse, right? Mm -hmm. These things are more fluid processes. Yeah. And so I was left on my own without a kind of foundation. And, and so all the fundamental questions of philosophy, questions of morality, questions of politics, questions of beauty, questions of truth came flooding in. But having had this experience of being burned once made me into a kind of skeptic. That's a crucial, important experience to have. It's one thing to understand what skepticism is intellectually as a, a doctrine or an approach to questions. It's quite another to experience it in the core of your being. So that skepticism also, I think, provided me with an understanding or a window into people who are fanatical about anything. So that kind of dogmatism, I have a window into because I was there. And um, so that has, you know, a lot of my essays end up coming out of that you know, my skepticism of political dogmas and uh, the lack of maturity, the unwillingness to recognize the messiness of the world and all the rest. I mean, you know, I'm embarrassed to say probably most of my political essays can be put under the title um, uh, Caribbean Enthusiasm. <laughs> um, but, but it comes out of an experience uh, for me. Retrospectively, I could look back and see that that my faith had something to do with recoiling from the complexity of the world, of wanting a simple answer, as 13-year-olds do. You know, William James says the average age of conversions is 13. When you look back at your own experience, where do you locate that recoiling? Well, because, you know, you're 13 years old, you've got all these questions, and you don't know how to answer them, which is, can be terrifying. And all of a sudden, you've got this book that answers all the questions, right? You know, it's sort of, you know... It's the internet, but in Hebrew. And Greek. And Greek. Yeah. Uh, it also gave me a, a window into the psychological resistance to knowledge. Mm. And that's what the book I'm working on now is about, which we can talk about. Oh, yeah, point. that's interesting. Does it have a proto-title? Oh, yeah, no, it's almost done. It, oh. It's called Ignorance and Bliss. Mm. <laughs> and it's about the idea that the less you know, the happier you are. 
And uh, it's an idea that temperamentally I'm hostile to. Uh, but in this book, I've started to understand uh, the psychodynamics of it. And, um, you know, I think basically there are two concerns historically that people have had about, um, about knowledge. One is concerns about possessing knowledge you shouldn't possess, beginning with, with children. So worries about a loss of innocence, I think, is sort of half of it. And the other is worries about the pursuit of knowledge as a way of living. And those all have to do with curiosity. And so half the book is about uh, our idealization of innocence, and half the book is about our fears about curiosity. I, I'm really fascinated by the, the, well, the whole theme is interesting, but the, the fact that the first half of the book dwells on this idea of loss of innocence. This is something that I've been thinking about a lot mm. recently and in my own life, I think. That I mm. feel like there was a over-premium put on me being innocent. I don't know if that's specific to being a girl, but I think also boys also feel this, but this idea that your innocence is something to hold on to, to prize, to... And I actually remember very, very much being a young girl and and I saw other girls around me starting to put on like makeup and do their hair and stuff. And I was very cognizant, like, no, I'm not going to do that yet because that would signify that I'm no longer a kid. And I read a lot of books and <laughs> and the books tell me that being an innocent is a good thing. And I'm going to like sit in this. And well, not in retros- Pullman. Well, yeah. In retrospect, I think it wasn't necessarily a healthy... Uh, it's not. I don't think it's super healthy to to put too much of an onus mm-hmm. on innocence. So I'd love to know what what you're uncovering in your in this research that you've done for this book and why we put such a premium and what it means for people. Yeah. Well, I, I should I should put a plug in for a new magazine I'm writing for now, which is called Liberties. Uh, it's edited by Leah and Weaseltier, and I just published one of my innocence chapters in there. So people should rush out to what used to be the newsstand and uh, get a copy of this. Um, no, you're, uh, you know, you, you've really lighted upon uh, something fundamental that, that I think is especially acute in this country, um, that we have uh, a struggle over this. On the one hand, we're hyper-protective of children in one sense, and on the other hand, we don't protect them at all, right? And so... We're telling kids, uh, you know, all the rules they have to follow if they want to get consent for a kiss, but they can look on the internet and seeing women Mm. being abused, Mm. and we don't put two and two together somehow, you know? And so I I, I write about that uh, in the book, but at the core of it is, I think, uh, the war of two ideas of um, what we are when we're born in terms of innocence. So one picture is that we're sort of a blank slate. And what's wonderful about the innocence of children is you can imagine them developing into all these things, right? And so they start fresh, no preconceptions, and off they go. But the other view, which is a Protestant view, is that we're born perfect at the top of a rung of a ladder. And each new experience in life as one 18th century Protestant divine put it, takes us one rung lower on the ladder. And so experience in life is one of descending from perfection. And if that's the case, then of course you want to preserve innocence, right? Uh, But it means then that you protect people against maturing and learning from life um, and making a smooth transition into adulthood. And we have problems being adults in this country. 
And there's a kind of idealization of the innocent adult uh, as well, or the common man, that because of their innocence, somehow they have, you know, purer, mm. more natural, and truer, truer instincts. In the book, there was extraordinary memoir written by this young girl, and I don't remember her full name now, or Leslie was her first name. And she was brought up in one of these radical Mormon sects that practice polygamy in um, Utah and, um, uh, and I forget which other state. And, um, you know, they were protected from being told anything about sex, and a lot of the kids were abused and abused by the leaders of the, um, of the sect. And she was forced to marry a cousin of hers when she was only 15. And so she tells what it's like with two 15-year-olds don't even know what they're supposed to do on their wedding night. And she tries to commit suicide and all the rest. The saddest part of the story is not that she was innocent and that it was violated, is that her mother was powerless to protect her and couldn't was herself clueless about sex. It's a story about how an innocent adult can harm an innocent child, you know. I have no romantic feelings about, about innocence. We've got to grow up. I, I took a note here about the, the innocence of the populace, of, of also the idea of the, um, the, 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 the simple man being something that we should um, admire, which obviously runs through the populist streak of, of American politics. We have a friend, a listener, and, and recurring sparring partner, um, Batya Ungar Sargon, who I'm sure pricked up uh, if she listens to this episode at this point. And I think she'll, she'll mount a vehement defense of that aspect of American democracy. What is the strongest case you have against the, the, not only the, the, the valorization of the, so it's the working classes, the idea or the, the populace or the masses, but also a defense against what her criticism would be, which is this is just an elitist aesthetic preference to intellectualization. It, this is just uh, uh, the, the, the flexing of an overeducated class against the will of the people. This is me oversimplifying her point. But what, what would, what's your rebuttal? Um, well, there certainly is a, an elite, a non-elite divide that has become not a, uh, primarily an economic one, but primarily a, a, a one in terms of education, which then has economic consequences, obviously. It's certainly possible to live a contented life based on decent values that have been passed on to you. That shouldn't be gainsaid, or, and, and it should, certainly shouldn't be, be criticized. On the other hand, if you don't know what you're talking about, if you don't know anything about public affairs, if you don't know how the world works, you are incompetent for being a citizen because the questions you are asked to judge on now, because we're no longer living in just these small communities in a kind of Tocquevillian um, era, are incredibly complex. Uh, obviously, the... Um, uh, the pandemic is a you know a very extreme example of this, but anything, I mean, figuring out figuring out questions about the environment, um, where do you put a toxic waste dump, um, uh, what kind of things do our kids need to learn in school if they're going to be prepared for certain kind of jobs, 
Um, uh, what kind of incentives should we be giving for businesses to come? All these things are really just complicated issues where you just need to know stuff. And, and what I find striking is that people who themselves have an aesthetic for the simple and the idea of, you know, the good rustic who understands things very simply, right, is that in other areas of their lives outside of politics, they don't live like that, you know? They, they, you know, if they need a knee replacement, they do not go to the guy who replaces their muffler. They go to a guy who knows how to do it. And in a technologically advanced world and a world in which economic decisions have repercussions globally, which means that decisions not here have repercussions with us, uh, the amount of complexity that you have to be comfortable with and know something about in order to engage fruitfully is very, the bar is very high. And so somehow you need to be able to defer. And, you know, there are countries where it's easier for people who are not educated because it's in the culture to defer to people who are the competent ones. Not surprisingly, they don't have a problem with this in Germany. Right, that uh, th you know, there's a long tradition of of obeying authority for better and for worse. Uh, pardon? For better and for worse. For better and for worse. Exactly. There's an ongoing argument that I have with, I guess, a lot of people, but at least of whom is Vanessa's fiance. Um, we argue about the significance of culture. He thinks that because I, I am from a journalistic perspective, I focus on culture has also studied history is like I, I'm put a lot of emphasis on the importance of culture and, and intellectual environment of political discourse where he he is much more in the the pragmatist side you know if you want to tackle this problem go at the policymakers or go at the and either engineers or or um, effective class that is relevant to that and try to push for change in that way but what you just pointed out to me is exactly the importance of culture. You can't have a real gut renovation of American politics and to, to the version that you're prescribing, where you have some deferral to authority without changing the, the, the fundamental belief in um, the, power, the, the genius of democracy, and the genius of the demos, rather. And I, I wonder, I wonder how you see those things. As somebody who is an, uh, uh, you know, obviously an intellectual, a, a scholar of intellectual history. Yeah, no, uh, you, you put your finger on the right thing. That is, especially when you, you're living in a, a culture which has a lot of democratic prejudices. Uh, I mean, they're more than democratic principles; they're also democratic prejudices, and we have a lot of them. And so, somehow, you need to give people the impression that they're making all the decisions and, and, and the ultimate decision should be for them. But when it comes to details, you need someone who knows things. So you've got to somehow hide that fact. You know, it's a very interesting fact that when a European politician is sort of hanging out in the green room with, you know, his shirt unbuttoned and his tie loosened and everything, and it's time for him to go on stage, he'll uh, button up his, his sleeves and he'll button the top and tighten his tie, put his jacket on, and go out. When an American politician goes on the stump, he takes off his jacket, he rolls up his sleeves, and he loosens his tie. Why? Because in Europe, the people want to see, here's a competent person, right? You know, ready to hit the ground running. 
But what American audiences want to see is this is someone I could have a beer with. Uh, I'd say part of the American public, because there's a part that almost overly valorizes the technocrat, um, which reaches a degree of prejudice as well. Yeah, yeah. So maybe they want to have a latte with them, but um, <laughs> but they still want them to be approached. Uh, you know, uh, you know, the greatest sin in in a democracy is to be arrogant. You know, it's not to commit crimes. It's to give the impression you think that somehow you're superior to someone else. And Bismarck was once asked, um, you know, sort of advice about politics. And he thought for a second, he said, you know, you can do anything with children as long as you play with them. And he just left it at that. And so, you know, if, if you just know how to play with, play with the American public and get them sort of into the swim of things, and then you can do the work that's necessary to serve them. I think there was a line in the Liberties essay, I believe it's called On, on Indifference. Uh, oh, that was title? an earlier essay, in the, yeah. In an earlier essay, yeah. yeah. And I think you had a line of, I'm going to be misremembering it exactly, but something along the lines of um, Americans are, um, when it comes to their love of democracy, their dogmatism around democracy, um, it may be unreasoned, but it's not necessarily unwise. And it goes a little bit against some of what you were talking about earlier, because you said that your your kind of prejudices uh, to to go against dogmatism, to kind of point out its its faulty it, its faults. So I'm curious if if you wouldn't mind unpacking why, in the case of American dogmatism around de- democracy, is it in this case perhaps useful? to be a bit dogmatic about it. Well, I, I, I think, you know, even though I've studied this, as a, studied this as a historical matter, there are genuine threats to democracy in countries where you would not have expected that, including our own. It's just a reminder of how fragile it, it can be and how, you know, a snake oil salesman can persuade you that there's something better than democracy or... Um, or something, an alternative democracy that he says is the true democracy, right? So, you know, a lot of the ideas that are circulating around, you know, national conservatism and uh, some of these right-wing forces, they're setting up think tanks and so on, are talking about a post-liberal order, a post-democratic order. You know, historically, it did did not take much for things to crumple in Europe. I mean, you don't want to reduce everything to Weimar. But, you know, I, I don't think we're naturally born democratic. And so... Better to begin with a prejudice for democracy and then work around it and try to complexify it or create a class of people who can think complexly and then deal with people who don't. But it, it, it's, it's very easy to lose the taste for it entirely. That Liberties article in uh, church, I, I, I thought was fantastic on indifference. You also, I guess, in some, to some extent, prescribe the the path to to this sense of deferral because I'm you know I, I I also have my own bias of when I hear the idea of defer to authority I I part of me clenches up because n- not just you know thinking Weimar or also just the idea that technocrats sometimes fail sometimes overconfidence leads to imprudent arrogance which could lead to awful unintended outcomes or to outright disaster. So there was some wisdom in the populist instinct to reject authority outright. The best and the brightest brought us the Vietnam War and some of the lingering mistakes of the great society. So you can have the best and the brightest and they may still fail catastrophically. So the word deferral is, uh, scares me a little bit, 
But what I loved about the Liberties article is that you've described, you've offered a more stoic solution to, to times of heightened tension where everybody needs to have an opinion is maybe don't. Maybe, maybe embrace some indifference. Mm-hmm. Can you, can you expand on this a little? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, m- my main focus there was, um, I, I guess, the fundamental question that I was grappling with is, how much morality is enough? Is, uh, are we supposed to be morally on 24-7? Uh, does every book we pick up have to give a moral message? Does every person we meet have to pass moral muster? Um, are we, you know, should I be worrying about everything I'm recycling? All of this. And that connects also to this question of expertise, I suppose, because do, does the fact that we put this guy or that guy in charge of the EPA, is that just a question of who has the best skills to solve this problem? Or is this a question of who is less morally depraved? Are we imbuing every such decision that should be a question of skill and expertise with yeah. moral fervor. Yeah, what I was most concerned with, uh, though, in the essay is um, the stultifying force of morality on the pe- peculiarities and particularities of the self. Just having a private space where you're just yourself and you can cultivate yourself and you can cultivate your art. You know, the whole realm of the imagination is getting squeezed out by this hyper-concern and over-concern about moral question, real moral questions uh, uh, and a lot of pseudo-moral questions. I thought it was time to make a plea for the autonomy of the arts and for the autonomy of having your, your own garden with your own thoughts. We've got to reserve space for us to be genuinely diverse, you know, with our different sorts of concerns. And are different opinions, not all of which are defensible, right? There, there's a second question that has to do with authority that you've brought up, and that is that what matters for the exercise of political authority is that further up the chain, public has a voice in choosing the people who then make the technical decisions. And Americans somehow both want a voice in choosing that person, and they want to retain the right to say no to the technical person who then comes and tells them what they're supposed to do. Which is why uh, we have such dysfunctional government, because it's more important Americans feel to express their views than that once their views are expressed, they actually get what they voted for. And so every election ends up being another attempt to, you know, I'm going to go to Washington to clean up Washington, and I'm not part of Washington. Well, you got Washington to run, buddy. You've got to take responsibility for this. And once, if we decide after an election that we want policy X, then it's not just that we want to vote to express our views about X. We also want X to get done. But you only get done if people follow the rules that are laid out, you know, by whatever authorities have been deputized. Arguably, the system itself is so sclerotic that, that the voting really has very little consequences in terms of the actual change of levers of power and that the, the Congress is unwilling to do its actual legislative work. And why would it when passing laws would give people tangible means to measure the quality of their elected officials, where instead it's much safer, easier, and cheaper to just bog down the entire process in performative soapboxing. And when we no longer expect anything from government, voting becomes just an emotive expression of public rage or 
mood. No, but I think that, uh, you know, you're reversing cause and effect from what I would say. Mm. And that is that the Republicans have discovered American public is not interested in legislation. They are interested in expressing their views. And so they keep expressing their views by sending people to Washington who are not going to, you know, be like Washington and keep reelecting them, even though they're in freaking Washington and they're responsible for Washington. But they're in Washington pretending they're not part of Washington. Um, and um, so, you know, we've gotten to the point where people are just more concerned with a, with a, a sort of, an, you know, I think that's what you were saying, more in a sort of expressive understanding or performative understanding of a democratic life. I think that, that you know, derives from a couple of things. One is, you know, a decline in confidence of government being able to deliver because um, government in this, you know, our government made big promises in the 60s it couldn't keep. One was that Vietnam would be over and it wasn't over and it was, it was horrific. And the other promise was that with enough gumption and enough money, we could turn around things in our central cities and help uh, the disadvantaged. Win the war on poverty. Yeah. And it turns out those problems are a lot more complex than anyone thought. The reason we don't get policy is that it's freaking complex. And you need to know the complexities. And you need to understand, for example, you know, you get to a certain age. I've gotten to that age where... Um, debates I heard when I was young are being made, uh, are, are, are ongoing again, as if no one has learned everything. Mm -hmm. So yes, we're talking about socialism again and all these things that are just water so under the bridge. But uh, the magazine I worked for back in the 80s, the public interest, was a public policy magazine. And what it did is that, uh, you know, the, the original inspiration, it then changed a lot, became kind of neoconservative magazine. But the original inspiration was to help, you know, uh, control and direct uh, uh, the energy that was going into the welfare state to try to learn from failure, which means pointing out failures. And it turns out we don't know hmm. how to get people out of these situations. If people have been brought up in shelters, we don't know what to do with them. It's not like someone has a magic answer right. in their pocket. Nobody knows. That's the problem that I have with the idea of expertise is that we, my concern is that some of these problems are, are so systemically complex that you can't just outsource it to the right committee. You're not going to find an expert in untying shoelaces to just figure out how to unstring the problem. It's, it's just too tied up. Yeah, and it's not just with institutions. It's also that human nature is much more complex. You know, when people, once people have been brought up in an environment up into a certain age, you can't really undo that. You know, or, or you're very lucky if you can do undo that. And it has to be done one at a time. It can't be, you know, it's done retail, not wholesale. And so saving people individually is a very important thing to be engaged in. But, you know, there, there were just naive expectations about how malleable human nature was. Right. And this notion that if, if we create a problem, we can fix it. That doesn't follow. Right. If it's possible for us to create a problem, it doesn't mean we can fix it. Which goes to my other question 
conversation with with Zev that I wanted to get to is that I every once in a while I get into debate when I con- express concerns of this issue or that that it it gets ascribed to the pendulum swing. Right now, the 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 left is overreacting to this, or right now the right is overreacting to that. And I'm just, I don't see what, all those metaphors about the motion of history or the idea that, that if there's a problem, there is a solution. And if, it, those are very elegant narrative ideas that we have about how we act as people and as a society. And we have no real reason to think that the world works this way, that the world follows such beautiful order. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it's not that, you know, the, the way out of a hole is the way you got in. It might be a completely different path. Or it might mean that all you can do is uh, try to ameliorate problems and hope for, for the best further down the line or that you learn something further down the line that can help. Except the in- but incapa- means- your own incapacity to, to make the sweeping change that you hope for. Yeah. And, and it means lowering expectations mm-hmm. and all the rest. You know, that was the original inspiration behind the public interest. But what happened after Reagan got elected is that it was just the critical side of the kind of things we were publishing that became part of Republican dogma, which is that right. government can't do anything. And government can't do anything. First, the answer was, well, the market can do what we're trying to do through government, which is worth trying. But when that doesn't work, then the answer was, well, we can stop trying. In a democratic society, you cannot stop trying. You are obliged to try to help your fellow citizens. That's, I, I just, my last question on, on this line is, uh, how, how do we reconcile this with the, back again to the idea of deferral to expertise? Because at the same, we have two very potentially contradictory ideas, but both of them true to some extent. One of them, we need the people who are skilled and informed to help us think about different aspects of running government and society. On the other hand, we also understand that not only do they have limitations, but sometimes they have their limitations in understanding their own limitations, which could create a whole new set of problems. Given that, how do we even start thinking usefully about who we should empower to solve these problems? Yeah, well, it's a good question. It means, you know, you know, in every kind of regime, political regime, this is true, but especially so in democracy, it's crucial that, uh, you know, you train your rulers. So how do people get formed? And uh, one of the things that worries me about the increasing class divide in this country is that you have now in government and in all our elite institutions, people who are several generations away from having any family member who, let's say, worked with his hands and really have no idea what ordinary life is, where people, you know, most of, most of the country, people don't have careers, they have jobs. You know, I, I often ask this in my classes. I say, well, um, how, how many of you had parents who worked with their hands? And how many had grandparents? So, you know, it could be you know, as some kind of industrial worker, a farmer or something like that. And the numbers keep going down. Um, you know, another way to ask it, which I said is, how many of you ha- uh, have, ha- have you have ever had a job, a summer job or any job where you shower when you get home, not shower before you go to work? And the numbers are, because kids of that class, they don't have summer jobs, you know, they do internships, they do, go do interesting things or they have arranged things or unpaid internships at things, you know? You know, I worked as a garbage man to get through college, actually. Um, And I also worked in a food factory. And, you know, I I was just, 
you know, I, I just grew up with people like this in, in a place called uh, Macomb County, which is a kind of famous county because it was sort of, it used to be heavily Democratic, and then the first Reagan Democrats sort of developed there, and books have been written about it. But if you really have no sense of what people out there are experiencing, you do need that. And that's one of the best arguments for diversity and affirmative action, uh, is that bringing in people who have just had different life experiences is very important. You know, bringing women onto the court was very important for that, uh, for that reason. If you're only bringing in elites from various groups, that kind of, you know, that's the point. Well, eventually it will, but there's enough family memory of different things. Mm. And, you know, often, you know, uh, disadvantaged minority families, if someone makes it, they've got other people in the family they've got to worry about who are falling through the crust of the earth, you know. And, and one of the reasons it's been difficult for African Americans to build capital is because as soon as they have money, they've got to take care of all their relatives, you know. One worry about this elite class is that they become socially out of touch. You especially see this in cultural matters. I mean, the debates that are going on in education right now, what books kids are allowed to read and what they're being taught about race, the way in which, you know, uh, the educational establishment, the journalistic establishment is waded into this water. And it's one thing to wade into these waters and expect a backlash and then say you've got to meet it for important reasons. It's another to be totally surprised that anyone could ever object to this. It means you've really lost touch with your country. It doesn't mean you have to obey the the rest of the country. But you have to know where people are if you're going to persuade them or work around them or change them or serve them. This reminds me that you had a, a chapter in your book, The Shipwrecked Mind, about Leo Strauss. And you made the point about how Leo Strauss becoming the face of neoconservatism is revealing in how it shows what happens to theory, theoretical thought, when it crosses the ocean from Europe to emigrate into the U.S. See how ideas that have a lot of valence and nuance and, and vibrancy and complexity, as long as they are restricted to the theoretical sphere as mind-expanding experiments, maybe training ourselves to see the world differently and revealing truths that have been hidden to us. But when they transition to the U.S., because America is so obsessed with practicality, with usefulness, with utility, the theory can't just stand on its own because that's, you know, that's a waste of time. It has to find a practical purpose. It has to be, uh, to have some applied use in, in the real world. And, and that makes bizarre theories, bizarre, interesting, mind-enriching theories be taken too literally in American Academy. Things that make perfect sense in the context of the continental dialogue uh, between German and French schools of thought suddenly become the, the stuff of dogma or at least a prescription for a political program. And you mentioned that in the context of Leo Strauss, but I, I think it applies to much of what we see happening with, with critical theory, which is, which is very deeply of French origin. And we spoke about this with uh, Professor Sluchowski. My point is that the American Academy often finds itself stuck in, in, the, in the crossing between those two incompatible desires to be both at, at the edge of, of philosophical discourse, but also at the forefront of political change and activism. Yeah, Tocqueville was on to this, um, you know, early on, I'm teaching again democracy in America, so he's very much on my mind. The way that, you know, we want to turn ideas in either into something practical or to give us a moral mission, right? 
people use the phrase political activism. It's not political activism. Political activism is getting involved with a political party. That's political activism. Moral crusading outside of the political process is something different, right? And if people want to engage in that, that's fine. But that, you're not political if you're just performing out there, right? What we have trouble is just dealing with hard and strange ideas that you can't put a happy face on or you can't use to fix your car. And so, you know, the fate of four, poor Foucault in this country, a deep nihilist uh, who gives you no hope, you know, he's, you know, he's Kafka, Kafka without the humor. Uh, you know, we're trapped in this web of power. Nothing can happen. You can't be redeemed. There's no authentic sexuality. You have no natures. All of that somehow gets turned into, gets an LGBT uh, flag, you know, sticker put on his books, and they become, you know, part of some eman emancipatory project. More insulting or more incongruent than Che Guevara merchandise. Yeah. This is something listeners, for the record, will have heard before because I, I complain often about how Foucault has tragically been appropriated as a, as a, an agent of change or the face of callow academic revolution, which is a shame because that's a very shallow read of his actually phenomenal, sometimes tedious, but often phenomenal work. Yeah, I spent a year and a half in Derrida's um, seminar in Paris. Uh, I, I lived there from 88 to 90. And um, he gave a year-long course on one sentence in Montaigne. Oh, mes amis, il n'y a nul ami. Oh, my friends, there is no friend. And um, there were no French people there. It was all uh, Americans, uh, Canadians, Germans, people from Protestant countries who were looking for something that would be political, something that would be moral that they could use here. You know, they were tourists, uh, intellectual tourists, but, um, you know, they, you know, I did not have a sense in, in those seminars that anyone understood that, you know, these ideas are dancing on the abyss. I'm going to go back to something from way earlier. So do you want to respond to that? Before uh, don't bother. I... No, <laughs> I can stay on this topic for hours. Um, no, I wanted to go back to something you said earlier. Um, when we were talking about the essay and you were talking about this idea of um, morality of, of you're not even a, can't, can't like curate your own garden of intellectual interest and curiosity because there's so much um emphasis on everything that you do has a moral implication, including the book that you read and the, the, the TV show that you watch. Um, and, and I'm, I just wanted to kind of dig a little bit deeper into that. I mean, how, where do you diagnose that instinct an instinct to input morality onto every aspect of your everyday life. To me, it feels like there's a little bit of a res resonance with your story about being 13 and, and looking for certainty. Um, and I wonder if in a world where religion is no longer the, the dominant factor, if, if like, this would be my theory, that because of that, there is a, uh, an extension now of, of this kind of moral impulse as a way to, to figure out the, Organize your world, yeah. Yeah, no. Uh, G.K. Chesterton once said that um, the problem with the modern world isn't that it's been de-Christianized, but that 
it's run by Christian values uh, gone mad. And whereas within the Catholic Church, you know, uh, morality was combined with institutionalization and understanding of human nature, fallibility, and all the rest. Yeah, um, I'm going to keep quoting at you. I'm sorry, but that's what I get paid for here. So, uh, uh, you know, Pascal's fam famous dictum that uh, you know, the source of all human problems is our inability to sit alone in a room is, you know, triply true uh, for Americans. Again, Tocqueville, just this, we were talking about it in my class yesterday about this, uh, about the need to, something about the anxieties that are brought on by a democratic life in which everything is up for grabs, your position in society is up for grabs, you have to hustle to get ahead, uh, that, that it doesn't, you know, it, uh, leave people their little private gardens. Everything has to be used. And so people are used to constantly tearing up their lives and tearing up their country and de developing new projects. You know, we're always, uh, you know, jackhammering the driveway and putting on new siding and a second floor of the house and building a vacation home and then selling that and flipping something else. And instead of just dwelling someplace, uh, we don't, do, you know, there's an old American tradition for this, you know, the tr think of the transcendentalists. But that's not where we're at now. You can almost see that change in the Roman concept of, uh, I think it's Greco-Roman concept of otium, which was you work hard so that you can find that boredom, that idleness, so that you can be with yourself, so that you can think and ponder and recline. Whereas now this idleness is what you try to banish and you only recline insofar as you must in order to replenish energies for another day of work and productivity. Yeah. So I um, want to talk to you about two books of yours that I love, The Reckless Mind and The Shipwrecked Mind, which aside from just being great titles that make me want to read them immediately. I'm now writing I've Lost My Mind. That'll be out soon. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that you explore in, in Shipwrecked um, about reactionary movements in, in the past 50 years, I got to say it was almost more startling to read it now and more poignant now that I reread it for this interview than when I originally did a few years ago. I particularly want to focus on your chapter about um, Brad Gregory, the, the historian, philosopher, uh, he wrote the um, the unintended um, the unintended reformation. What he has in this book is this weird, uh, for me, weird, I guess, weird nostalgia for the Middle Ages, uh, where in his vision of it, uh, Christianity, Catholic Christianity, was truly Catholic and reigned supreme, and and that's a form of theocracy that he seems to be longing for, and. What's so weird to suddenly read it today is just how how I guess back in vogue this this desire for theocracy is in in the U.S. Something that I thought was no longer a thing, um, but 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 there is there is real appetite for. You yeah. find popular commentators suddenly endorsing Catholic integralism all of a sudden. I just find it perplexing. Uh, but but Gregory is is obviously uh, uh, intellectual forefather of, of a lot of these um, you know the modern day Sarabamaris, and I'm just interested in in the role of nostalgia in all of this because you can see how how much this dominates public discourse in the U.S. 
I'd say from on both sides, but certainly let's start with the with the conservative side. I wonder what your thoughts are about where we are right now in terms of nostalgia. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, nostalgia has become become the coin of the realm on the right. That's for sure. You know, uh, uh, if I can just back up a little from this, you know, I think we're, we're entering a period now where um, after losing the two grand internationals of the Cold War and really the history from the French Revolution to 1989, we had a sort of international left around socialism and communism, and then you had an international liberal democracy party um, that you know were at war with each other for all that time, and then that disappeared with the Soviet Union and all the changes that have happened. Now we're seeing two new internationals uh, developing, one on the left that you know, maybe you can call it the successor ideology like Wesley Yang does, something around identity and things like that. And on the other hand, a new international on the right, because these groups are connected internationally now, uh, of, of a nostalgia party and whose, you know, they're also identity obsessed, but their obsession turns into a nostalgia and like a lot of nostalgia is for things that never were there before. Now you can sort of understand that or get away with that if you're in, live in a continent that has a long history where you actually there were things to be nostalgic about. Uh, American history is very short and relatively uneventful compare, compared to Europe. So what are people nostalgic for? And, um, and so they don't have, uh, you know, when this impulse comes on them, they, they can't refer very far back. And, um, you know, you can say, well, we have a nostalgia for the future, like Henry Ford said, but that doesn't function like this sort of nostalgia. And so uh, the American right is sort of looking around at uh, Catholic ideas and um, some um, integrist ideas, like, like the ones uh, you mentioned, but also other uh, non-democratic or anti-democratic thinkers um, you know, there's some publishing houses that are republishing people like Mohas and, um, uh, you know, various Italian and Spanish uh, reactionary thinkers, and they're all talking to each other. Uh, there's this conference that happens every year now uh, uh, called the National Conservatism, Con Conservatism Conference. Do you know about this? No. Oh, this is very, very important, and it's going to become even more important. It was actually the brainchild of someone you may know about if uh, you guys have spent time in Israel, and that's uh, Yoram Hazoni. Oh, Hazoni, of course. Yeah. And so... That the emperor of anti-liberalism. Yeah. And so he sort of brought all these forces together in a way that Steve Bannon was not able to and made connections between people in Hungary, people in Poland, people in Israel, people in the United States, who sort of get together... And they, they share sort of two principles. One is the importance of the nation state for democracy, and I'm down for, with that. And the other is a kind of conservatism that's highly selective and is very much based in the past. And they're, rumbling, they're you know, looking around in you know, old boxes in the attic to kind of find stuff to, to feed in a contemporary way their their conservatism. You know, you have people being nostalgic for, 
of things that obviously they never grew up with and they have to uh, look elsewhere to kind of conjure up memories. And so the book by Gregory, you know, gives you this rosy picture of the Middle Ages, which um, to the extent we understand anything about what it was like then is a wholly idealized picture. And somehow this all came to an end and there's a search in uh, nostalgic reactionary thought for a moment. You want to look for a moment where things were going along swimmingly. And then there was an event that broke history in two. From that moment on, there was decline, right? And you call that the road not taken. Uh, well, so, well, no, that's the road we took, which is decline. Right, right. The road not taken is the fantasy about how things could have turned out. Could have developed, right? And so... It's kind of a mirror image of the revolutionary mind. The revolutionary mind, um, you know, in the Marxist tradition classically, is that there will be a break in history in the future, after which everything will be fine. And so they both share the idea that history can suffer a trauma after which things change, right? The reactionary feels he's already lived past this, uh, this revolution. Cataclysm. Yeah, and things have declined, and so they imagine a road not taken. And so the reactionary mind faces two options. One is to imagine going back to the status quo ante. The other is to say, well, actually, there's no going back. So what we have to do is actually jump over the present and create a society that will make live again the values and the kind of life that was in the past, but in a modern guise and stronger and more defensible. And, uh, you know, out of the first impulse to go back, that sort of classic conservatism, uh, but th the idea of jumping forward because you can't go back, uh, fascism comes out of that. I'm not saying that everyone who thinks that way is a fascist, but fascism is that. It's not conservative. It's Counter, Radical or progressive counter nostalgia. Right. It's counter-revolutionary. Right, so it right. wants another revolution, but it wants to create a, a place that will be, you know, some sort of paradise by not having the weaknesses of the earlier one. And you see both of these strains on the right right now. And so if you, you can look online at all these speakers who are at these national conservative conferences, and some of them are you know, talking about Catholic ideas and how to revive them. And others are talking about a, the need to have a new industrial policy that we have to be, have a kind of Colbertist economy that's directed by the state that also uh, gives money to families. And we're going to build a new society where it's a very active government with an elite that helps run things, but the right kind of elite. Right. And, you know, we're going to have health care and everyone's going to have pretty babies and, you know, you know, you hear all the echoes when that... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it's interesting because you said uh, regarding the lingering power of nostalgia, you, you said that they're nostalgic to something that they didn't grow up with. And yet, clearly, they're, they did grow up with the absence that the nostalgia se seeks to fill, that there is something that they're craving, some want that, that is, is, is existed in the American right for decades, if not longer. What, what is it? Is it just power? Is it just the fact that we are not in, 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 a, in a theocracy, a feeling or a feeling of decline? Of what is it? Um, well, I think in the American case, it has something to do with 
just the perpetual dissatisfactions of bourgeois democratic life. Mm. It's an inherent absence in the democratic, in the liberal life because it doesn't offer you meaning or direction or purpose. Or drama. Or drama. Right? I mean, we... Like an agon. There's no real conflict. Yeah. And so, you know, we're just not fed with this other thing. And so often, you know, the thing I, I, I've always found is that among the conservatives, I find far more thoughtful people than on the left. Thoughtful in the sense that they're serious about their lives and deep existential questions. It's rare to meet people, young people on the left, who are all like this now. You know, they just don't seem to have an existential bone in their bodies. It's not true on the right. But somehow this yearning for, for more meaning or for transcendence, they somehow confuse with a historical tragedy. And so they treat it not as the human condition, hmm. but as what you called it, a lack. They presume there was something there that mm. fed people before that, that we've lost, but maybe it's just the human condition. We haven't lost anything. It's just, that's what it is, right? So, um, and, and somehow, the, sort of they t so, so they're often people troubled by deep concerns. Uh, uh, Yoram Hazoni is one of these people, actually. Um, he's, he's a deeply troubled guy. And uh, some of his troubles, are, you know, turn into, you know, serious reflections about the Bible and so on. And then other things are other things. Uh, but, uh, but yes, somehow they think that even if they're dissatisfied with political life and think that there's something more than political life, they see that somehow political action is going to get them to a world where, that, where uh, living with that becomes easier. So it's in, it's the natural existential angst when you're not fighting for your survival that they fill with the myth of loss. Or yeah, and, and, and certainly, I mean, you only have to read Dostoevsky to know that there was an older revolutionary tradition from the 19th century down, you know, I would say into the 60s, uh, in which people thought that all their problems with life and their deep questions would be answered by a revolution right. that would transform society. But now we seem to have produced a pseudo-radical, pseudo-left uh, among young people for whom it's kind of performance, and they're just, they aren't absorbed by these serious questions, which actually in the end makes them less potentially harmful than the radical right or the, or the old radical left, because they're never going to produce anything. Isn't it? If the if we have a a, a left a young uh, zealous left that is unthinkingly replicating some kind of liberal dogma, isn't that in itself rather dangerous? If there is no independent thought to discern the what could what would actually improve society versus just tear it all down? No, I I, I simply meant that. They aren't going to be politically effective, and they are not politically effective. They don't change anything. Uh, you know, the only thing they change is elite opinion, and they change the cultural atmosphere for sure. And you can say that's a problem, but but a, but actual political change, th this generation will change nothing. If anything, this is, this is another point that I go back to. It, it, it serves to antagonize and alienate people that they should keep, and giving more soccer to the to the other side to the. To the nostalgia does, side. 
bring up the question of kind of self-censorship that we were yeah. talking about on the on the walk over here this idea of there there is there does seem to be some sort of power coming from the left because of the cultural influence where people are and i see it like in the corporate environment at work like people are starting to censor the way they talk the way they behave um and i think you bring up bring up that there is a real a real danger that we're essentially going to be self-censoring our thoughts. Yeah. Well, well, look, that is not a political project. It is not a, a political in the you know in the deep sense of what politics is, which is public life and po collective political action. You know, um, that you know the policing of language, the worry about what you eat, all these sorts of things. You know, we we've had temperance movements and things like that before. It's, it's that kind of phenomenon. That's a moral right? crusade that you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's a moral crusade. I mean, you know, some people want to call it religion, like John McWhorter. I think that just confuses the matter. But yeah, we just do moral crusades. But but I'm certainly susceptible to a nostalgia for a time when there was a serious when there was a serious left with people who actually believed or wanted to believe that we could transform human existence. And in order to do that, we needed to understand human nature, we needed to understand history, we needed to understand economics. And these were deeply serious matters. And so the kind of conversations I had in college with people like this, I have great nostalgia for again. And the young people I lead on, meet on the left now are, you know, they're school moms. They, they, they are not political people. It's a, it's such an interesting distinction, but obviously this is something that you're referring to in need for the the, the personal space for the self. But I, uh, the, the, one of the ideas that lingered from the 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 sixties as a, as a dogma is the personal is political, right? And 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 it's the idea that that every action is in some way part of the 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 revolution. There's nothing including lack of action that can be construed as apolitical according to this worldview. And you touch it a little bit in, in the chapter about that um, French Marxist Maoist who refers back to St. Paul and Paulian theology, uh, whose name I, I can't pronounce. Uh, um, Badiou. Badiou, thank you. In, in just how totalitarian in a literal sense, like, to, to, like total, like complete worldview the, the revolution requires. And so obviously also demands conformity of language and conformity of action and also an acceptance sometimes of atrocities in the name of the cause. That was there on the left from the 60s, wasn't it? Uh, oh, 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 sure. But it's one thing to morally disapprove of someone. It's another to say that what you're doing is somehow holding back the revolution, right? And so, you know, for example, um, the reason it was important to push for what was called free love back then, which meant free love for men, was to break down these hierarchies uh, that were there because they were standing in the way of developing a truly revolutionary class, right? So it was, it was tied to political action. Mm -hmm. It was not someone coming in and making sure your soul was tidy. Mm. Right. But then it became that often, you know, there was different strains of feminism. Some were more political in the first sense, others in, in the latter sense. But there was this sense that, uh, you know, we, we got to get with this program. And part of it is, you know, a kind of, you know, sexual anarchism or artistic anarchism just to shake things up. 
Uh, and, and then there was this vain hope that out of that, then, you know, something, you know, some class of some sort will rise like a phoenix once these structures have been broken. I see this tying into what you described in your Liberties article as the, as the beautiful souls, the the uh, political activists who act from an aesthetic drive, who who needs aesthetic perfection and and equate moral um, edification with 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 this aesthetic purity, and accordingly demand aesthetic conformity. They need to use the right words, and, and as much as they need to wear the right clothes and 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 wave the right flags, mm-hmm. um, you know, graffiti the right slogans. So, do you see that? As the mirror image of the the conservatives' desire to or need to fill this meaning void, or is it just lazy politics? Well, I've been trying to say I don't think it's political at all. Right, right. in effect. But I want to understand subjectively what how they understand their actions. In their minds, are they striving towards political change, but doing so on the cheap? But, you know, focusing on who's receiving poetry grants and who's allowed to host the Oscars. Basically, are they focusing on this because this is just a cheap way to get a sense of political involvement? Or is it not that at all? Is it just an aesthetic project to begin with through and through? Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of it has to do with the disappointment of revolutionary hopes, right? And so... Oh, so it's despair, too. Yeah. I think so. I mean, one response to the collapse of revolutionary hopes would be to say, well, I'm not on the left anymore. That category makes no more sense. We need new categories to understand the situation we're in. The fact is the left is dead because there is no foundation now. There could be again, perhaps. But, you know, the changes in our lives and the transformations of our lives are coming from very different directions, right? And... Um, so the nostalgia for the term left, what it is mm. to be on the left, it's just so not today. We're not living in a world in which that's relevant to anything, right? And it means deeply reconceiving. Even the word capitalism, I think, is something we need to rethink and jettison because it comes with too, many, too much garbage, uh, baggage rather. You know, it's tied to an idea of classes that are, visible and clearly divided cultures that go along with them. The working class is a phrase that means nothing. There are those who hold the means of production, those who don't. You know, and all those things are no longer the case. You know, the, the, the largest holders of capital in this country are pension funds. The workers own capital. Capitalism, that's in, you know, if, if, if the measure for what counts as capitalism is a class that controls the means of production, well, we do, right? And, and so all sorts of things like that need to be rethought in order, and I'm not saying be, not be, to so that we're just quiescent, on the contrary, that we need to be more radical in our thinking to look at our situation without that kind of baggage and try to understand it from the bottom up and let our words follow our insights rather than our words and our concepts sort of getting in the way of us seeing right. what's happening in front of us. You know? um, we, it's, it's time for us to pack, so I just wanted to give you a chance to conclude on the, um, on the question that we touched before. What you described as in, in, indifference, you, you had a, in, in passing you described, but I, if you can finish up, by the, the case for indifference. What I mean by indifference is that there are certain questions that people might be arguing about or conflicts that are going on 
that you've decided just to sit out from, which is not to say that you're opposed to one side or another, but we're not obliged to have a position on everything. And we're not obliged in particular to bring moral judgment on, down on everything we feel and everything we experience. We don't have to put it through a moral filter because we stop ourselves from developing and we cease to know ourselves if we don't get rid of the moral filters and experience the full complexity of the human, uh, the human psyche and uh, human existence and social life and all the dangerous things that are in us. Sometimes we have to, you know, we have to get in touch with all of those things, right? There are different things that just make you what you are. And uh, part of that is also in getting in touch with yourself without judgment is cultivating the things that are within you and especially letting your imagination run. And this is important for anyone who's doing anything creative is to let your imagination run. And uh, one of the great things in the 60s uh, was that people were listening to that impulse, right? And many too far where, you know, they were just, you know, spending all their time in primal scream sessions and, and, and things like that. But the idea was that um, then was that capitalist bourgeois, middle-class, democratic life uh, was blocking all our pores, right? And, uh, and so we need a space in which to develop our very selves, the thing that is me and not anyone else, with all my peculiarities, all of my tastes, all of my weaknesses, all of my potentials uh, that are there, and that it's a preserve. Um, keep out. Yeah. And uh, so that's a deeply individualistic um, um, picture of uh, what we have to do, but it need not be selfish. It's not that you, you lack concern for other people or you don't participate in life, but you've got to know yourself fully and uh, you've got to become more that, than you can know. And um, the concern for that seems to be so, so lacking in our culture and especially uh, among those, those who, whom you would most expect to, you know, have demands for this, and that's the young. That the young are the most censorious at this moment, which is a very strange inversion. Thank you so much. You know, just in conclusion, I guess I, it, it, your writing reminds me of something Hannah Arendt wrote in the 50s. Um, she describes the pre-war generation and uh, the fervid, feverish energy that, that took over the peoples of Europe and, and pushing them to, to crave uh, a war, which would turn into a world war. And she says that in those pre-war days, everyone seemed utterly incapable of assuming an air of healthy indifference about anything under the sun. Oh, that's very, I didn't know that. That's very nice. Where is that? The origins of totalitarianism. Find me where that is. I'll send you the page number. I appreciate that. Yeah, that idea of indifference seems almost imperative if, if liberalism is at all important to you. Thank you. 
Mark, thank you so much. This, this is great fun. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are UncertainPod on the social media. And if you're feeling generous, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Share us with your friends and enemies. And until next time, stay sane. Something that seemed pretty obvious, I think, to a lot of us wannabe liberals. <laughs> Mark Lila's, I was just checking his Wikipedia page. Um, let me actually read it. This is, this is what, why Wikipedia is, is gold. Um, Mark Lila's Wikipedia page uh, has the line, a self-described liberal. It's just, just wonderful. It's like, mm, so, so he says, <laughs> a likely story. A self-described liberal. <laughs> he frequently, though not always, presents views from that perspective. <laughs> Suspicious. <laughs> he has a variety of ideas about hmm. the world. That uh, may not fit into one <laughs> category or silo. <laughs> mm. uh, whoever wrote this. <laughs> the hive. The, recl- the reckless mind in about the early 20th century and the reckless mind and the ship... <clears throat> The reckless mind about the his history of the early. <laughs> Take a moment of say. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs>